Hello and welcome to Sanford Uncut, a podcast where we talk about continuous delivery, continuous integration, testing, and developing software in general. Today with us, we have Dave Farley. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, it's a pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. So my name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the authors of the continuous delivery book that described continuous delivery in the way in which we think about it these days, I think, for the first time. These days, I make a living as a consultant advising organizations in how to, in general, improve their software engineering practice, but specifically in the context of continuous delivery. So if you're a big organization with legacy systems or a complicated build system or whatever else, you know, I tend to help people get over those sorts of problems. And uh, can you maybe guide us through some examples of how day-to-day life looks as a you know, software consultant helping companies? on their journey? Sure. One of my clients described what I do for a living as kind of strategic consultancy. So I'm not no longer the sort of consultant that goes in and kind of writes code for people. I used to do that, but that's not really what I do anymore. Mostly what I do these days is advise organizations on, on broader topics. And so mostly my consultancy kind of falls into three different groups of activities. I kind of do quite a lot of public speaking. So I speak at conferences and things like that. And so sometimes I get engaged by organizations to go in and talk to them and try and get them interested or enthused about ideas around continuous delivery. That's kind of a small part of what I do. Occasionally, I do things like run training courses for people. But the bulk of my work is really about consultancy. So what I tend to do is go into an organization and try and analyze the way in which they practice software development kind of from soup to nuts. We try and do some kind of value stream analysis and understand how their development process works. And then usually I kind of critique it. I'll kind of give them advice about different parts of that. And that usually boils down to a bunch of different kinds of activities that they might carry out. So maybe their problem is that they have a pure requirements process. Maybe their problem is that they're bad on automated testing or automated deployment or Maybe they're bad on being able to manage testing quickly enough for a large body of software. How do you decompose that into something that you can evaluate more? And this kind of leaks into lots and lots of different parts of the organization. The scope of my consultancy is quite broad. It kind of goes from senior management consultancy about vision-y kind of stuff to detailed hands-on strategy about how do you architect a system to be more modular and therefore easier to deploy in smaller pieces. And I kind of do pretty much everything in between. And so it's quite varied, which means it's also quite interesting from my point of view. Yeah, and I guess that among all those companies, there are some patterns that you see. Yeah. Maybe what would be interesting to know that some of us may recognize ourselves in those categories. What are maybe some anti-patterns that you're seeing and what are people struggling with mostly? Quite a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Let me philosophize for a moment to try and put that into context. I think that the biggest anti-pattern of all, the kind of probably trillion dollar mistake that our industry has made, is miscategorizing what software development is, misunderstanding what it really is. And so nearly all organizations, nearly all of my client organizations anyway, at some level, try and treat software development as a production problem, a problem in production in the sense of being able to scale it up in order to be able to produce things more reliably and and so on. And software development isn't that kind of problem. I think of waterfall development as the equivalent of a production line kind of approach to software thinking. 
And software isn't that kind of problem. Software development, to my eyes, is always an exercise in learning and discovery. So I think that first and foremost, we should be optimizing our work to be really, really good at learning, discovery, experimentation, exploration, and those sorts of things. So I think that's the biggest anti-pattern. So one of the common facets of that that I see in my organization, I think it's fair to say that agile thinking over the last 20 years has won the argument for how to approach software development at some level. And so what I tend to see is I see lots of teams, technical teams in bigger organizations, practicing what they think of as agile software development. Usually what that means is it means that they're practicing some form of scrum. And usually what that means is that they're having stand-up meetings and they're running in things called sprints, but they're not delivering software at the end of the sprints. The stand-up meetings are usually kind of status meetings. And there's very little or no automated testing. There's no kind of continuous planning. There's no kind of customer involvement. So it's not really Scrum, let alone really Agile or anything else. And then the way in which that operates is commonly in a framework of governance across the organization that is essentially a waterfall. So they're still doing annual budgeting processes. They're still doing planning. Most of these organizations are feature-driven where they're optimizing their development process to ensure that everybody's busy rather than everybody's doing something useful. And there's quite a lot of anti-patterns in there. Then you can get down to the more technical anti-patterns. And so I'm a very strong believer in the stuff that we learned in the 90s from Kent Beck in extreme programming. I think test-driven development, pair programming, and those sorts of techniques are fundamental steps in being able to do a higher quality job. And I think that they should be much more widely adopted in our industry than they really are. So that too is kind of one of the anti-patterns to my eye. So often, even in organizations that do a lot of automated testing, on the whole, they do it after the fact. And what that almost always results in is, yes, better tested software, but the tests are slow and inefficient and they are highly coupled to the software under test. And so in order to go at the continuous delivery speeds, you have to kind of change that strategy. The last one that I'll call out at this point, which is commonly broken, is really about the interface between the business and development teams. But the story or the requirements process is often inadequate. Mostly the commonest form in which I see requirements expressed is as technical instructions. So do this thing, add this column to a database, you know, refactor that component, those sorts of things. That's not really a very effective way of organizing a development process for lots and lots of reasons, some of them obvious and some of them kind of subtle. But that's a poor interaction. It means that it's kind of like trying to write code by remote control, and that's not an effective strategy. So there's a whole bunch of things that people commonly get wrong. But I think that the big one that it all boils down to is this misapprehension of trying to treat our problem as though it's a production line, and it's not. It's not nothing like a production line. It's a creative, exploratory, intensive problem. The last part of that issue in big organizations is the other really hard problem in software development, which is not only is this a problem of exploration and learning, it's also a problem in keeping and managing complexity. So ultimately, all of our work, we have to work within the constraints of what fits inside a human being's head. Therefore, we've got to treat very, very seriously ideas like modularity and 
coupling and separation of concerns. And that's true at an organisational level, at least as much as it's true at the technical level of the software that we build. And that's another area that traditional organisations comprehensively tend to get wrong. Yeah, all the things that you have mentioned, even for me, I'm in this industry for 10 years. I have been hearing these things 10 years ago. And now again, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, extreme programming, pair programming, and all those agile practices that are here from 90s. If you take that, you know, time window of like 20, 25 years or even more, how do you see a rate of change and adaptation of that? And yeah. We think of our industry as being an industry of change. And at some level, that's absolutely true. But I think it's kind of peripheral to what's really going on. I've been doing this for a very long time now. So I've been in professional software development for nearly 40 years now. So I kind of seen it grow up and make lots and lots of mistakes, but also do some amazing things. I think that one of the facets of our industry is that we are surprisingly poor at learning. So we don't really have mechanisms in our industry to either appreciate and promote good practices or identify and reject bad practices. What tends to happen, it seems to me, is that we just accrue collections of behaviours and technologies and we constantly relearning and reinventing the same problems and the same solutions over and over again. I saw something on Twitter this week. I was involved in a conversation and somebody posted a challenge to say, could you name a single practice across our industry that we could consider to be standard? If I thought hard about it, I couldn't. So somebody cropped up and said version control. I came across an organization last year that didn't use version control. I think using version control for some kinds of software is actually quite unusual. So if you're configuring product systems, often you don't use version control. So even something as fundamental as I would consider as fundamental to doing a decent job is not used across the board. You couldn't say that against other professions. All surgeons wash their hands. There are no surgeons that don't wash their hands. I think we're an odd industry in that respect. And in part, I think that boils down to not looking in the right places for how to solve these problems. One of the reasons why I value continuous delivery and the thinking around it so highly is not because of my personal involvement. I don't think this is down to just having a personal connection with the idea. I genuinely don't believe that's true. What I do have a personal connection with from my point of view is the idea of the application of the scientific method. I think the scientific method is humanity's best problem-solving technique. And I believe genuinely that continuous delivery is an application of the scientific method to solving problems in software. If I was writing that, that means that continuous delivery has a decent case to make to be considered as a genuine engineering discipline for software. And I believe that's true. And if that was the case, the implications of that would be that what we ought to see is that people that practice continuous delivery did a better job than people that didn't, because that's what engineering does. And engineering amplifies the effectiveness of craft, of creativity and understanding, and makes those things higher quality and more reliable. That's what happens in other disciplines. So we ought to be able to observe that in software development and the evidence is that that's what we see. So if you read the Accelerate book, it will look at the State of DevOps report, that's what the numbers tell us. They tell us that organizations that practice continuous delivery produce higher quality software more quickly. The people working on it enjoy it more and the organizations that practice it make more money. So those are pretty good measures on the whole. 
Yeah, one thing that you mentioned, there is so much complexity that a single person can hold hand at any point in general. And comparing software industry to other industries, so I don't know, if you were producing cars, there are various, you know, physical laws that, you know, keep us honest and a rate of production cannot be by the order of magnitude probably different. You know, a speed of a pipeline which is producing a car and how it's moving to the factory. And uh, yeah, who knows, maybe in the software industry, there is that 10x, you know, 10x myth about, you know, developer or not to myth. My point is that maybe also that 10x or 20x or something like that could happen to organizations who are practicing continuous delivery compared to the other ones. And my point of comparing that to something which is produced in the physical world is that the difference can be even larger. So hopefully a proof can be, you know, very obvious. Yes, I would agree with you with some caveats. So certainly we have an enormous advantage. This is what I mean really when I talk about as not being a production problem. In the real world, if you're building something, if you're building anything, the design of it is one part of the problem and the production of it, you know, multiplying that thing out so you can mass produce it for a cost or whatever, is a huge part of the problem. If you're building cars, the first one is not easy, it's not simple, it's a difficult problem in its own right, but it's a very different kind of problem to then turning that into something that you can productionize and mass produce. We don't have that problem because push of a button, we copy the bytes, and that's our production problem. So our problem is always the first part. It's always an exercise in design and learning and discovery. So that's one big advantage that we have. The other huge advantage, monumental advantage that we have is that we have computers. We can automate everything about the process except the human creative bits, the complex decision-making that we're good at. We can automate all of the rest of that, and we can make that so much more efficient. You know, if you're building an aeroplane, there are only so many times you can kind of build the aeroplane and crash it or test it to destruction You know, once each for each of those things. That's an enormously expected way of doing things. We can write software that crashes our software all of the time, millions of times during a day and evaluate what happens and kind of refine and hone what we're doing. On the whole, I think that we don't take enough advantage of that process advantage that we have. The last point, the bit to which I can't completely agree, there was a very famous paper published in 1986 by Fred Brook, the author of The Mythical Man Month, which even by then was kind of a legendary book, in which he wrote that there's no such thing as a silver bullet. And his argument was that you know we are acclimatised because of Moore's law to seeing doubling of performance every couple of years and 10x improvements in performance are kind of normal in the hardware industry. It's actually very, very rare to see the equivalent of that in software. And I think that's kind of true. You can think of only a few sort of really major steps that gave us that kind of level of improvement, probably the step from assembler programming to high-level languages, possibly the step from procedural languages to object orientation. Maybe the introduction of the web was a 10x improvement. Maybe, I don't know. But there's a few of those things. There are a few moments, but they're quite rare. But I think what's absolutely true is because of the thing that I mentioned earlier is that our weird inability to really learn as an industry. And I think there are a variety of reasons for that. But I think because of that, what is true is that most people are not close to what's possible. So finding 10 times improvement if your software development process is broken is easy. 
finding a hundred times improvement if your software process is broken is easy. I had a client recently, I started working with them and they hadn't released any software into production for three years when I started working with them. So getting them to the state where they are now of being able to release reliably every few months is an enormous step forward. There's still a long, long way to go before they're delivering releasable stuff for you every day. But they're on the journey now. And so the HP LaserJet story is wonderful. When they switched, they saw an eight-fold, an eight times improvement in productivity, eight times as much effort, let alone the productivity, eight times as much effort was expended on just doing new stuff. So I think 10x improvements are available for those organizations that aren't already good. I think if you're already good, Finding a 10x improvement is probably tough, but there's always a way of improving, but it's probably very difficult to think of what the next 10x improvement is going to be. Yeah. The thing is that we are not connected to the physical world. Our fast feedback process is much, much shorter comparing to making anything physical and testing it, even if it's a spoon. (laughs) And getting there and establishing that fast feedback process in the talk that we had previously, you mentioned the strategy of testing. So that's something that's uh, very practical and connected to this fast feedback loop. Can you maybe share a bit on that? What do you see as a successful you know, testing strategy and getting to that fast feedback loop? Yeah, by all means. So the mental model I have when I think of this is based on a real-life project. I was fortunate while in the middle of writing the continuous delivery book to get employed building one of the world's highest performance financial exchanges. And it was a beautiful project. You don't get these very often. There was a blank sheet of paper start from scratch i was already immersed in the ideas of continuous delivery so we did it based on continuous delivery from scratch that's the model that i always kind of have in the back of my head what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to achieve the fast high quality feedback that you're talking about and what that means is that we're trying to get to the point where we can kind of make a change and release that into production with a degree of confidence and there's a number of things that kind of go into that the first thing that drives that is the ability to try and weed out the bad changes as far as we can. So the spine of the continuous delivery book is kind of organized around an idea called a deployment pipeline. And the aim of a deployment pipeline is to organize the evaluation of any change that's destined for production and try to eliminate the bad changes. So this is another one of those things that we kind of learn from science. We're trying to treat it as a falsification mechanism. If any test fails, we're going to reject the change. We start off with kind of developer-centered tests because they're the people that are making the commits usually. They're going to use the strategy that I recommend is use test-first, test-driven development. So you're going to write some tests, evaluate the code that I'm deploying. We're going to commit that code. And what we're looking at that point is to get feedback very quickly so that we can kind of get a sense of whether this was a good change or a bad change and a fairly high level of confidence that if all of those tests pass, everything else will be okay. Generally, I advise my clients that what they should be aiming for as a target is to get feedback in under five minutes with roughly an 80% level of confidence. That says a huge amount about the nature of the tests that you can afford to run in that amount of time. It means that they can't afford to be starting up another process or talking to a database or talking to a file system or talking to a message queue or any of those things. So really, we're talking about these fine-grained, small, focused unit tests that are kind of the output of test-first, test-driven development on the whole. That gives lots of beautiful properties in terms of the impact on the design of your system. That's a very powerful step in its own right. 
academic research suggests that just that kind of testing will eliminate something around 70 odd percent of production defects. So you're talking about a 10x improvement. This is one step in that direction. 70 odd percent of production defects means that you spend an awful lot less time chasing and fixing bugs in production. That's brilliant. That's really, really good. And essentially all I've described so far is continuous integration. That's what Kent Beck described at the end of the 90s. The downside, it's not really a downside, but the limitation of test driven development is that what it does is it says, does the software do what I as a software developer intended the software to do? And it just verifies that. It's a bit like double entry bookkeeping, but for software. And that's brilliant, but it's not enough. You also need user-centered tests. You need to evaluate the change from the perspective of a user of the system. We call those acceptance tests. And my preferred approach to acceptance tests is to kind of build this into the development approach so that you capture requirements in a way that are focused on the user intent, the desired behavior of the system. You capture a number of examples that would demonstrate that that behavior was delivered, which we call acceptance criteria. And each one of those acceptance criteria we implement as an automated specification for the behavior of the system. When that specification is in place, we do TDD, TDD, TDD until it fulfills that specification. When the specification is met, we're done. And when that test is passing, we know that the behavior is kind of functionally complete. And then there's a bunch of other sorts of tests that are kind of more. So those two seem fundamental, those two stages that I've just described. The first one we refer to in the book as the commit stage. The second one we refer to as the acceptance test stage. Those two stages seem to me to be fundamental to any decent automated testing strategy. I can't imagine writing software without those two stages anymore. And then there's a bunch of other tests that you might decide that are slightly more contextual depending on the nature of the problem. My background was in low latency finance, so performance testing was absolutely high priority. So we built uh, in automated performance testing at multiple levels, sometimes component testing, sometimes whole system testing. We did things like data migration testing, we did resilience testing, scalability testing, security testing. Basically, we tried to test any kind of behavior of the system that we could imagine. <laughs> Ultimately, if all of those tests pass, there's nothing more that we can think of doing before it's ready to go into production. And that's the objective. What we're trying to do is that we're trying to build this deployment pipeline that coordinates these testing activities to the point that there are no more activities to perform in order to release that into production. So that brings one more level of validation for some organizations. So for organizations that work in regulated environments, so healthcare or finance or gambling or transport, those sorts of organizations, then in order to be able to release into production, you also need to have fulfilled all of your compliance demands. So you can also automate most of that. So you can build that in. When we built the deployment pipeline for our exchange, we could evaluate any change to our production system to the point where there's no more work to do and we could get an answer back in under 57 minutes. And that's radical in terms of the impact it has on your software development. So I coach my client organizations to go for 15 minutes for the commit cycle and under an hour for everything else. You can parallelize it as much as you like. You can throw hardware at the problem as much as you like, but you want a definitive answer back in under an hour. And the reason for the five minutes is basically because that's how patient I can be before I'm, <laughs> I'm getting bored and want to move on and do something new. If it goes longer than five minutes, you start to see adverse behaviors because people start to think, well, 
it's going to take me 10 minutes to figure out when it's passed. So I'll just write some more code before I commit. And what you want to encourage people to do is work in tiny, small steps. So you want the evaluation to be as cheap as you can. The smaller the steps, the better. So typically, the way that I work is test-driven development. So I'll do red, green, refactor, commit. Red, green, refactor, commit. So I'm probably committing once every 10 or 15 minutes, maybe more frequently than that. So if it takes more than five minutes, that's really going to slow me down. So five minutes is about the limit. And then under an hour is about evaluation. I have this theory. I don't have data on this. Usually I like to have data. But subjectively, what I observe is that there's a strong relationship between the duration of the feedback and how many tests are broken in your test environment. If you have an overnight build and you don't know the answer to whether all your software is good until the next day, my guess is that you are probably living with maybe 5 to 10% of your tests permanently broken, which means that the picture's obscured. You now don't know what state you're in because you don't know whether those breakages matter or not. Should you release or not, there's either you're taking a big chance or you're doing a lot of work to figure out whether those failures matter or not. If I could bring that time down, let's say I bring it down to two hours. So if as a developer I then commit a change, two hours later I find that I've broken something, then I identify the problem and immediately commit another change. I'm not going to find out for another two hours until that's fixed. In Teams, two hours, that means you've got two attempts probably during a working day to fix a problem. And what I observe is that there's usually a small residual knob of tests that are always failing in that situation. If you can bring it down to under an hour, then now I've got five or six attempts to correct a problem if I introduce one at the start of the day. And that's enough, it seems to me, to be able to stay on top of it and for most of the time, all of the tests to be passing. And it's that simple. So you aim for the fast, high-quality feedback in order to be able to be in a position so that in continuous delivery terminology, your software is always in a releasable state, meaning all of your tests are passing. So that's kind of the testing strategy that I recommend to clients. Now, there is some scope for manual testing, but all regression testing is automated in this world in order to get the speed and efficiency that's required to fulfill that kind of very tight demands on time. Yeah, it's always very interesting when you get to that, you know, human and physical values, as you said, you know, my patients can hold for five minutes. After that, I start doing something. In our company, we were holding that market as 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how we arrived to that, to be honest. <laughs> there is now quite a lot of talks for a couple of last years about microservices. Mm-hmm. So this fast feedback, like uh, five minutes, and then my work day is, you know, seven hours top, let's say six of something that we can call productive. So there is a high correlation between what the human can wait and process and so on with that fast feedback cycle. So it has to be matched to the human and to our productivity and our workday. What do you think? Is there a correlation? And what are your thoughts on microservices in general? Because there could be that correlation with the level of complexity, what you are holding, what you're responsible for at any given moment. Although in a large code base, that should be also true as in a small code base. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Is it something that you think that has a high value potential? I like the microservices approach, but actually I think that it's an expression of some deeper principles. And so I talked earlier about you know software being essentially an exercise in learning and managing complexity. 
And I think that what microservices does is it gives you a little help on both of those fronts, but there are other strategies that you can also use to keep those things in check. I think that if you understand that's what's going on, it makes you better understand why microservices are important. The reason that I say this is because I think that lots of people get microservices wrong. So I think that the microservices are important. First, as you point out, each service is simple and therefore it's relatively easy to reason about. That's a big step forward in terms of being able to fit things into people's heads. The other attribute of microservices, though, that's really important is the degree to which they decouple organizationally. So the reason why you know Amazon first took the step to microservices wasn't because of fitting stuff into people's heads as much as it was to liberate the organization to be able to work you know more independently in different parts of the organization. And I think that's a crucially vitally important strategy. And in order to be able to do that, what that means is you don't get to test all of the microservices together before you release them. We talked about anti-patterns earlier on. One of the anti-patterns that I see very commonly in large organizations, everybody's read about microservices, and it's kind of an obviously good idea when you read about it. It makes an awful lot of sense. But lots of ideas, what we tend to do is that we tend to parse the ideas and miss out the bits that sound hard or difficult to think about and just try to go for the easy bits. And so microservices, okay, great, let's write all of our software in little pieces, Let's write them all based on some kind of API, REST API or messaging API, whatever else it is between. But I don't trust that my microservice works with your microservice unless I test them together. And the way in which you split up the microservices, if I want to change a particular behavior, I need you to implement a feature before I implement a feature. If any of those things are true, it's not microservices architecture. So microservices are independently deployable. That means you don't get to test them with each other. That means that if I make a change to my microservice, I'm going to deploy it, whatever version you're running, and they're going to keep working. That's the objective. And that brings in a whole load of baggage in terms of managing the complexity of the interfaces between the microservices. The only way that microservices make sense is that interfaces between the services are more stable than the implementations of the services. The only way that they make sense is that the teams are independent of one another and they rely on the technical decoupling at the level of services to also decouple them as teams. And so there aren't dependencies on the work between them. That's hard stuff to get right. That's very difficult stuff to get right. If you've ever worked in a software system that has a public API for any reason, that's tricky stuff to manage, but it's the same game, except now we're talking about it between our services. I see lots and lots of organizations that write these tightly coupled components that they call microservices that, to my mind, aren't because they're not independently deployable and they can't even imagine being able to deploy those without testing them together. So that's a key value and a key complexity of microservices. I've started increasingly thinking about what it is that we do, at least the way that I think about it as an engineering discipline. And when you think about engineering, nearly every engineering decision has trade-offs. So a monolith is not a uniformly bad idea. Monoliths have lots of nice properties. One of the nice properties of a monolith is you completely do away with dependency management because you build everything together, you test everything together, and you deploy everything together. You know it works because you tested it. A microservice is not a bad idea, and it gives you lots and lots of advantages, but it has the downside that you can't test everything together, and so you've got to worry about the interfaces. But it gives you this massively scalable approach. It allows you to grow at Amazon rates and do that with essentially people never talking to each other, just their software components discovering different behaviors and interacting. 
that's a bit of an exaggeration, but you understand my point. So thinking in terms of these engineering trade-offs, I think is important at multiple levels. So it's true architecturally, but also organizationally. And those two are deeply interlinked to do anything serious, any scale. Yeah, that's great to hear because a lot of times I haven't heard the discussions about testing everything together before deploying. And sometimes I was generally questioning if the approach of deploying everything independently without testing it together and how you know the state, what works with what generally. But the point is that you shouldn't. You should, you know, keep on developing your stuff and someone else should comply with those interfaces and move on. As an industry, we've got a little bit into lazy thinking here in that we categorize everything as either microservices or a monolith. There's massive shades of gray here. So you can build a completely distributed monolith made out of services that communicate, but you test them all together. That's how we built our exchange. Or you can build a completely decoupled microservices application or a a monolith that you deploy in pieces. You can do that too if you really want to. They're not hard and fast things. They're just kind of general guidance in terms of direction. And The common pattern of microservices where you kind of build them, they're tightly coupled, and so you feel bound to test them together. That's a monolith. It is a monolith. It's just monolith written in small pieces. It's actually the least efficient way of building and deploying it from a deployment pipeline perspective. You get fast feedback, but you get the illusion of safety in that I've made my change, I've got fast feedback in a few minutes, all my tests passed, then three weeks later, a test over there somewhere else, you know, in a different component fails that you caused and you don't get visibility of it. It's a more complicated picture than people might give it credence sometimes. Okay. And um, something that we mentioned prior to this conversation, which I found very interesting, you mentioned uh, working on a new book mm-hmm. and uh, you also mentioned, I don't know if it's directly connected, you know, what the software development will look in a hundred years, which is quite intriguing. So. Can you maybe share more on uh, where people can find your new book, when it will be available, what's it about? Sure. So I'm probably talking about this a bit early in the life of the book. I've written about half the book so far. I'm just preparing to maybe release it on LeanPub to get some feedback. So if people want to track where I'm up to, perhaps the best thing they can do is follow me on Twitter and I'll announce it on Twitter. So my handle on Twitter is at DaveFarley77. The working title, I'm probably going to change this, but the working title for the book at the moment is Modern Software Engineering, which is a bit of a grandiose title. And yes, at some level, the ideas of what software development like in 100 years' time is related to that. It's one of the spin-offs of thinking about the book. I spent lots of years in the past, in the early part of my career, with job titles like software engineer, and I did no engineering whatsoever. I spent the mid part of my career with terms like software craftsman or software developer or something better. And I worked with those job titles. And then at the end of my career, or towards the end of my kind of professional career as a programmer anyway, I had jobs where I think we did actually do engineering in the sense that we've been talking about in terms of applying kind of scientific rationalism to software development. And that works better. <laughs> that kind of started me thinking, so maybe we should start to try and reclaim the title software engineering. I think that mostly, we again, we've made mistakes when we've tried to talk about software engineering. We think about too prescriptive, too detailed approaches. You know, one of the things that springs to mind when people talk about software engineering to me is a big, complicated UML diagram. That's not engineering. That's just a tool. So what are the kind of fundamental principles? And that's this line of thought led me to having conversations along these kinds of lines. 
And at one point I had an exchange with somebody on Twitter. To my embarrassment, I can't remember who said this on Twitter, but somebody said to me, if we could genuinely come up with some principles of engineering for software development, they would be as true in a hundred years time as they are today. And that resonated with me because that's true. The deep principles that would represent engineering for us in our discipline would firstly be unique to us because all engineering is, is targeted within the discipline in which it executes, would also be profoundly true. That probably means that we already know what they are. It probably means that they're kind of durable and long-lasting. If you start thinking in those sorts of terms, you get to some fairly fundamental principles. At the moment, I have five principles in each of two categories. So the two categories that I've mentioned. So the first category is you know, optimizing for learning. So what are the techniques that we should use in order to optimize to be able to be really excellent, world-class at learning? And I would argue that those are, we should work iteratively, we should establish feedback, as we've talked about. We should work incrementally. That's kind of modular, so we can kind of break things up and we can take advantage of building systems piece by piece. We should work experimentally, and we should use empirical measuring reality and reacting to that. I can't imagine anything that we could imagine as an engineering that wasn't built on those kinds of ideas in terms of learning. And then there's the ideas about how do we manage complexity. Those two are ideas that are common to people that have ever worked in software development. It's about modularity, abstraction, separation of concerns, cohesion, information hiding. Those sorts of ideas seem fundamental to me to be able to work in a way that keeps work isolated so we can make progress without worrying about the impact in other parts of the organization or other parts of the software. So I'm working on a book that's trying to explore those sorts of ideas. And if we were to get that right, I think that we would come up with some things that would be true in 100 years' time. When all of the computers are writing the software on our behalf, they'll still be practicing these disciplines. Yeah. One thing we will not be able to have is a fast feedback here. <laughs> so we will not know, but <laughs> yeah. But it's a very, very interesting. Uh, also a very interesting how you got inspiration for that and uh, how some potentially a stranger <laughs> planted that idea <laughs> yes. and inspired the book. Yes, it did. And I'm very grateful to the person, but I need to dig through my Twitter history and see if I can find it. I've had a few looks and I haven't been able to find it yet. Okay. Thank you, Dave, for this conversation. It's been amazing. I constantly keep thinking about that, how to validate those ideas in the book from a hundred years. <laughs> so maybe add some kind of a checklist. If you are reading this in here, this and this, am I correct? <laughs> yes. Contact my granddaughter and let her know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Again, thank you very much for this conversation. Good luck with your book. And yeah, we'll be sure to share the link to your Twitter account so people can you know, discover the book as soon as you decide to publish something live and people can give feedback. Right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.